Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, awesome topic, awesome guest. Today's topic is the Emerge story with Andrew Leto. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? Joe, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing great. Guys, I uh, never met Andrew until 20 minutes ago, half hour ago, and we've been kind of prepping, mostly technical issues, but I'm excited. I've known of him for many years. He's well known by a lot of us in the logistics and transportation space, and it's my honor and pleasure to uh, be interviewing him today. So thank you, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. So before we go any further, please introduce yourself and your company. So hey, everyone, I'm Andrew Leto, but this is my third company in the logistics space, actually fourth, but I don't talk about that fourth because it's my failure, but if Joe wants to go into it, I don't mind, but... <laughs> but I've had two other successful companies besides Emerge, my first being Global Trans, and started that when I was 23 years old, right out of the Navy. Now it's, I think it's around a $2 billion company now, and I'm proud of what I did there. And then I started a company called 10.4, which is visibility for trucking, and it was from there that I came up with the idea for Emerge, which is what I'm doing now, which I'm really excited about. Like, it's my most exciting company to date. And what's awesome about what we're doing now is like, when I first started Global Trans, I had no clue how logistics really worked. Now, now that I'm building my new company, I know building a company from scratch, especially technology, it's always nice to know all the moving parts. So it's, it's exciting and it's fun to be at, be at Emerge and in the industry. I love this. I love logistics. I love freight. I get excited when I pass, just like most people that are in trucking logistics. Like when I'm on the free highways, I see a truck, I notice it. It's just fun for me. Like I love that. I'm sure you, Joe, you might be the same. But. Oh yeah, I used to drive by trucks. Right? Most most of my career was more supply chain, but and so I used to drive by trucks and say, God, I know we need them, but God, I hate driving by trucks. I live in Michigan, and usually, like a truck comes by, especially in the winter time. There's like slush going, like a wall of slush hitting your car. You're like, great. <laughs> I could be blinded next to a, a truck carrying 40,000 pounds. But so tell us, who do you serve over there at Emerge? Who's your customers? We're building technology for shippers and shippers that ship a lot of starting for a lot of truckloads. So that is what we're building right now. We're building technology for shippers. We're concentrating on the RFP, which is how the shippers go procure their trucks. And that's where the Emerge story came, like the whole idea came from. I saw that when I was at Global Trans that there's a lack of technology on how shippers go out and procure their truckload, their trucking. As a matter of fact, for all their freight, there's a lack of technology. There's only a few competitors and they're really focused just on trucking. So we're building an RFP platform for shippers, which we call the marketplace. It's a market because that's how we drive revenue. But it's really the whole idea behind the technology is to make it easier to connect with your current carriers and brokers run a bid more effectively and efficiently using all the latest technology and benchmarking and then going out and procuring truckload rates through, and then how we make money is through the network effect. So if a shipper brings in, you know, there's 50,000 for higher trucking companies. So we're using, giving the shipper, the shipper, the platform for free, because when they bring in their 50 to hundred brokers and carriers, every shipper has a different set of carriers and brokers. So if everybody was on the same platform to do their procurement, in my opinion, it'd be a much more efficient market for capacity. If every trucking company went on and bid on the same platform, and then when they're doing a bid for their one shipper, they could again go see other shipper freight 
on the other side and bid on that. It would just be much more efficient than the way it is now. I had another podcast where I think Emerge came up and somebody kind of said, well, Convoy versus Emerge. And I think what they were, and this is not to be critical of either model. I'm sure they both work very well. One said Convoy, if a load is, it's not a true marketplace in that if somebody brought a load that nobody wanted, it just would go. They would at some point say, we're going to do it, even if we have to do it at a loss. We're going to find somebody to make that, move that load. And they said in a marketplace like Emerged, correct me if I'm wrong, if nobody wants it, it just it languishes or they raise the price on it. Are you guys more a true marketplace that in that regard? Yeah, so the difference between us and a digital freight broker, and we have a lot of digital freight brokers and we have partnerships with them. They actually have. We tender more, just as many loads to them as we do to carriers our system. Oh, really? Okay. You're not trying to replace necessarily 3PLs or brokers. You're saying, hey, we can partner with them too. It doesn't matter to us. Yeah, no, that's our goal is to give the shipper the best procurement system to run their trucking. That obviously includes adding their truckload broker, which could be a convoy Uber or one of the digital rate freight guys, tying into their automated rates. So we have APIs built to all of them. So if you're using digital freight brokers, you come to Emerge and run a bid. And then if you're using it for spot, the digital freight brokers don't have it for contract rates. But for spot rates, you can go in and get a spot quote from any, any one of your digital brokers all from the platform instead of going to all these different websites. So And then you get the tender right from, if you tender to Uber or Convoy or Transfix, you can do it right from our portal. Our model is we do somewhat compete with them because we do connect carriers to the loads as well. But if the shipper decides to use Uber, if Uber is more less expensive than a carrier in our system that's bidding on the freight, then it'll go to Uber. And we don't lose sleep on that because that's as long as our goal is just to give a platform to run your whole bid. On average, we get about 10% of the freight that's moved through our market to carriers that come in and bid through our marketplace. But the difference between us and a convoy and Uber is that we give up, it's really, we focus on the procurement side of it for spot and contract. You could add all your carriers and brokers, you know, a shipper has usually 15 to 20 different carriers and brokers on average. Some of the largest ones have 100 to 200. Right. You could add all your carriers and brokers to the bid, and that's what we do. And then we, instead of uh, when a digital freight broker puts in a rate, the difference between us and them is that our carrier, we actually have carriers bidding on it directly. So it's, but yeah, they don't always win. I mean, sometimes the digital broker has better rate, and that's up to the shipper to, the shipper does all the tendering, decision making. Right. So just give me some definitions here. So I know we all know what a freight broker is, right? So these freight brokers used to use phones. Now they're using more and more technology. So I know some of them would say I'm a digital freight broker, but I don't think you would call them a digital. They would say you're still a freight broker, but using technology. And then there's companies called digital freight brokers. I think Convoy is one of those, right? And then you're more what you would call a marketplace. Am I correct? We call it a DFM, digital freight marketplace. It's hard to categorize us because we don't have that many people doing what we do. If there was like five, I would say it'd be easier. But there's digital freight brokers and we're DFM, digital freight marketplace. I would say the closest company that would do what we do is probably JB360, which is uh, JB Hunt's version of our, what we do. Where, But the difference between us and JB360 is that you could add all your carriers and brokers, whereas JB360 wants to control it all. So Right. Well, yeah, they have assets and they obviously they would want get some of that business we think differently we think that in order to the shippers not doesn't want to just deal with one broker they want to take advantage of digital freight brokers they have relationship with other carriers like how do i get my schneider rates if i'm on jb360 you know so that's where we come in that's where we think we have this model that makes more sense in the fact that you can tie in all your carriers and brokers to the platform and then we have no ill will towards any of the carriers our goal is to give the shipper the best 
system to procure their freight. Right. You're broker and carrier agnostic, I guess they would call, right? Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. And then, yeah, the digital freight brokers get just as much freight as any other carriers in our system, especially ones that come to our market. The difference is we price the freight through the carriers actually will bid on the freight directly versus getting an automated rate from Uber, which or or a digital freight broker, which helps us not have to lose money because we're not playing the game of buying freight and then trying to find carriers on the other side. Right. So we jumped right into it here, Andrew. So I want to understand a little bit more about you before we get back into the details of what's going on over at Emerge. But tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Tell us about you as a kid. Yeah, so I was born in New York. My dad and my mom moved to uh, Phoenix when I was three years old. So I grew up in Arizona, so I don't have an accent. My dad and my mom taught me a really good work ethic, which is the East Coast work ethic. <laughs> Everything my dad used to tell me like when I was young, he's like, Andrew, whatever you do, do not have this manana attitude they have on the West Coast, which is true. I mean, to a certain sense, I mean, all the way to Hawaii, you know, it's like they work, it's all about how to live. I've had friends say that who move from Michigan to California is that they're like, oh, we like to hire people from the Midwest because they have a different work ethic. And I was like, but look how successful California, how many successful. So this is always the weird thing when somebody says that you're like, what are Silicon Valley slackers? I mean, is Hollywood slackers? There's some, somebody's working hard out there. Well, yeah. And Silicon Valley works because you don't have to have massive calls. Like Chicago works the best in our industry. If you think about it, because you got that Midwest work ethic, the, the kids that come out of those big colleges out there, the Ohio States, Michigan's, they're willing to go blue. out. And our industry is very much, it's the most manual industry left, in my opinion. One of the most manual, maybe the most manual part of our GDP is trucking and logistics, right? As far as, that's why if you think about it, there's not that many great companies that can be developed in the California or the West Coast market in our industry. I mean, it's very hard to name one that's super successful in logistics because of that reason. My brother is my partner. We started our company here in Phoenix, Arizona. And I always say if, we, if, I, if Global Trans was developed in Chicago, it would have been three times bigger because just because it's so much easier to find talent out there, you know, because everybody's in logistics. So it's probably one of the, best, the biggest Chicago, especially. I can tell you this when I look at who listens to my podcast, it's always, and they, granted, these are very big states, it's always Chicago, Texas, California. There is East Coast for sure, because again, there's a lot of population there. But you can always see Illinois is big and Texas is big and California big because of the ports. <laughs> but uh, well, it's a big state too. Yeah, what we do, which I've always been a part of as logistics, is it's not automated yet. You still have to call carriers. And even if you have a digital freight marketplace or your digital broker, you have to have a massive sales floor of people still. Right. So getting back to your upbringing. So your, your mom and dad are from New York and they moved out to Arizona. Where in Arizona? Phoenix? Well, I grew up in Phoenix, but now I live in Scottsdale. You know, that's, I didn't start off in Scottsdale. So, but I was always my dream to live there, but now my dream is to live in Paradise Valley. So I'm building a house there, which is awesome. That's like the greatest. Where's that at? It's closer to Phoenix. It's called Paradise Valley. It's like uh, next to Campbellback Mountain, if anybody's been to Arizona. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, we grew up here in Phoenix and I went to high school here and yeah, built my first, all my companies here. Besides 10-4, I did that in Colorado. So when you were a kid, you had this good work ethic driven by mom and dad to, to get jobs? No, I didn't actually. I think I went to the Navy because I didn't have a good work ethic. And I didn't, my parents didn't drive. They weren't really academic type of people. They didn't like push me into go, hey, go to college. So I, when I got, a, I didn't really have the grades to go to college in high school. I mean, I, I graduated probably the bottom of my class with grades. I just passed. I barely passed. So I joined the Navy. 
So I was like, okay, what am I? I didn't know what I was going to do. Like most kids when they're 18, I didn't have the money to go to college. So I was like, I joined the Navy to go get the GI bill at the time, which was $30,000. So did you play sports or anything when you were a kid? No, I don't. Uh, I'm a musician. So I play guitar, All right. music, piano. I love music. So I got to know who's their favorite rock bands then. Pink Floyd is my favorite all time. Radiohead, love that. So, so yeah, you're on that. I can, soon as you say Radiohead and Pink Floyd, I, I kind of see where you're coming from. So did, did you play in bands? Yeah, I was a bass player. I had a ponytail. It was back when the Red Hot Chili Peppers were just becoming famous. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anthony Hughes had that shaved head on the side look with the ponytail. Yeah, it was pretty... My wife reminds me when she sees it, she's like, that's disgusting. So, <laughs> so you rock band for how many years? I just did a couple of years. We played shows. I was a bass player, even though I was a guitarist. But when you play guitar, you can play bass. So, And everybody needs a good bass player. So I played bass in my band. That's what I did. I was more of that kind of kid. Like, So can I go on YouTube and find pictures of your old band? No, we weren't. We, never got that. <laughs> we weren't that good at all. Yeah, so I, so I, we play around Phoenix? Yeah, different clubs when I was 16 to 17, 18. Nice, nice. My brother-in-law, Matt, went to Thunderbird. He played, uh, he was the biggest band in Phoenix, he used to say. They were all Midwestern boys, and as soon as they got signed, they they said, we got to move because we're not from the desert. <laughs> There's not that many great bands that ever come out of it. It's the sixth largest city in the United States. I think the only claim to fame we have is the Jim Blossoms, maybe. like. Oh, yeah. That's the only rock. Kind of 90s band. Yeah, I like them. World, that was another one, but that's... It's not Ooh. really music town. Jimmy World, it's a... Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. But uh, it's not really a great music town either. So as far but as... But everybody gets their turn. Because I'm from Detroit, so we had Motown. And I look and say, who would have ever thought like Seattle could have something? Or everyone gets their turn. I don't think it's depressing enough here to have... You need know, to have a depressing... Like That's why England and Seattle make great rock bands. Because it's, you know, it's dark. Disney. The weather? Yeah. We got a little bit of that weather here in Motown. I think ours was a little bit just... It was a, a. We had all that southern migration. We had all these great musicians and clashing of different musical styles hitting at the same time. And man, it just worked. But so you're a musician. You weren't a good student. Did you play sports? And you no sports. You were more more playing your guitar. And then you said at the end of high school, you're like, "Hey, I'd rather than go to community college. I am going to join the Navy." So tell us about your time in the Navy. Yeah, I was the last. So just about sports, I was the last kid picked on the playground, pretty much. So it was uh, that was pretty devastating. But that's why I decided I didn't have the hand-eye coordination. Where I have skill set as far as how I think, but I just my brain doesn't connect to my body parts as well as most guys. So I didn't. Really I did join the Navy out of high school, did five years, went to San Diego, became a sonar tech. And yeah, I was on two different ships. I was on a frigate and a destroyer. So what is a frigate anyway? Frigates are pretty much the, uh, we call them the torpedo sponge of the Navy. So, <laughs> tornado sponge. <laughs> nice. I would not get on a tornado sponge. Torpedo. torpedo. So in a battle group, when you have a, uh, you have a carrier in the middle, right? Then you have your cruisers. Then you have your destroyers, and on the outside edges, you have your frigates. So your frigates are your first line of defense against the submarine, which are the most devastating thing to a Navy, right? It's submarine. Actually, planes are, it's hard for planes nowadays to take out ships. Harpoon missiles, you don't even see the ships that you're fighting against typically in, in most modern warfare. But the frigate was the torpedo sponge. So we were, I think I would go to, I was in from 96 to 2002. I was a sonar tech. So we would have a towed array. We would pull this, pretty much you're pulling like a mile long you're pulling microphones behind the ship and looking for the sub. Your whole job is to protect the carrier. Yeah, if you, I know every job is important on a boat, but I think to myself, yeah, the guy who uh, sees threats a mile away or 10 miles away, or, it's probably pretty important to the gig. 
Yeah. So what did you learn while you were in the Navy? Did that straighten you out? I know a lot of people go into the military thinking that's going to make me a better man. Did that work out for you? When I was in it, obviously, I, you look back and if you would have asked me if I liked it when I was in it, I'd probably tell you no. I would wish I could do this. <laughs> Looking back, I'm so glad I did it. It was a great experience. It was discipline. It showed me the world. I saw the whole world. You get a thicker skin being in the Navy, being in the military. It's constant putting down of even your best friends or you just put each other down all day. So it gives you kind of a thicker skin. Like I noticed right. when, I, when I talk to guys that aren't in the Navy, it's like they're a little more sensitive uh, to that. I imagine you're getting good shape too. I mean, I've seen uh, the military. I've never was in the military, but I've seen they whip you into shape pretty good. The Marines obviously the best, but the Navy is probably the least out of the four. I mean, as far as the, you have to stay in shape, but it's not like they push that when you're on the ship. As a matter of fact, I would say we're the, probably the most out of shape out of the four branches. Oh, so there's a whole bunch of sailors who are cringing going, no, that's not true. <laughs> when you're one of them, you can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I went through. People listening to my podcast are probably saying enough about the seals, but I during the pandemic when we were all trapped inside, I'm in the Midwest, so it was cold and rainy in last March, and I was sitting around. I live by myself. My kids are grown, and I'm sitting around by myself. I work from home. I was so bored and also, you know, a little fearful. You know, people aren't paying their bills and that whole thing. And I thought to myself, all I do is sit around and eat. I can't go to my gym. It's closed. And I kind of felt like really like a slacker. And then I started listening to David Goggins, who's a Navy SEAL, Jocko, Navy SEAL, Brett Gleason. All these guys were Navy SEALs. And they're so inspiring. And they're all over this. So you find them on YouTube or podcasts. It's motivating. I mean, people people who have that background, and that's not just Navy SEALs. It's military guys. They, they have this, and gals, I don't want to be mean here. They have a, a discipline that is ingrained in them that's different than the rest. Yeah, I, I think that too. And back to Navy SEALs, I remember Navy SEALs used to come onto our ship. It was like gods just came to the ship. Everybody was so like... Just, you guys were impressed with those guys, huh? Yeah, you're in awe of them. And, and actually, they had like superhuman strength almost. Like they would. I remember being in the gym with the guys no bigger than me, obviously way better shape. And they would like lift twice as much. They, it's crazy how it's totally different. But there is a different... Like I've been told this a lot of times, like if you have a military background especially hiking and doing stuff like you have better control over your pain. You know, like you could push through things better. I think it helps do that than most people. I think that's really important because as a kid, I played sports. I never played at a super high level. I didn't, wasn't gifted athlete or anything, but you learn to grind. And I also learned to overcome pain because there's always, if you're playing football, you're always, got a sprained finger. You always got taped up even as a kid. And I always think that at some point, you're going to get older and you're going to have aches and pains. And I have to tell you, from my own experience, I was hit as a crossing street and I was hit by a truck. So many people would say it's karma, but <laughs> I didn't like it. And I had to go to a lot of a lot of surgeries and a lot of physical therapy. And I was thinking, thank God that at some point I had to push myself through pain and a little bit of uh, training. So, you know, with sports as kids, like uh, I feel bad for like, if you're a good athlete, you're always like just in pain the rest of your life. Is it? Is it really, like, to me, in my head, like, a, is it really worth, unless you make it as a superstar athlete and you're getting paid for it? I always thought, like, it's kind of crazy to put your body through that as a kid. And then, because you're going to be in pain the rest of your life. A lot of guys are in pain the rest of their life. Their legs. And their right. Back. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there is that. And I, you know, I guess there's the give and take of it all. But so anyway, you, you went in the military and you, you had this sound as if you uh, kind of found yourself in the military. And then when you came out. You were a better man. You were more disciplined. You were had a more sense of yourself, right? What did you decide to do with yourself? How old were you and what did you decide to do with yourself? I was 23. That was 20, I'm 43 now. So I was 23 when I got out of the Navy. 
And my last year in the Navy, all I did was read constantly. I self-educated myself last year because I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I just started reading and reading and reading everything I get my hands on, you know, how to build businesses, how like trying to understand the, the mindset of how to make money. Because I was like, if I get, when I got in the Navy, all my friends are graduating college and I'm just... So these are business books. Yeah, just a hundred, like I read every business book you could think of and... Which one comes to mind as like, this one really changed everything for me? I've talked about it in other shows, but I think to me, the greatest book of all time as far as success is concerned is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I listened to the tapes years ago. I'll have to double check that one. Yeah, it was written a hundred years ago. It's timeless. And I think everything written after that, like by Tony Robbins and Gary Vee, all these new guys. It's all from there. <laughs> yeah. And thank God Andrew Carnegie at the time, the second richest man in the world, had the wherewithal to hire a writer to truly write, well, how do we think as, how does Rockefeller think? How do I think as billionaires? And that really set me on my path. I was like, wow, you don't have to. I always thought like you have to have a college degree and then you have to put your time in, work your way up the ladder. I mean, that's how you're taught. Like, I don't know if it's taught like way anymore, but that's how it was like back in the 90s. You know, it's taught like you have to work your way up the corporate ladder, get experience, res- you know, that, that matters. But really, what I learned when I started reading these books and Think Grow Rich kind of set me on that path is that that's not what's needed. What's needed is the mindset. So you wanted to start a business right away then? Not necessarily. I just wanted to make money. I was just like, I'm going to get out of the Navy. I have no money. I've never had money. I'm like, I got to make some money. So it was all about that at first. And then I was like, oh, well, when I started Global Trans, it was like, oh, I'm making good money. But then I started getting really ultra competitive. I was like, I want to be the what we do at the time. I want to be the best at that. And I would just find, you know, it was never about trying to be rich. It was always... At first, it was about just making money, but it was after I started paying the bills and make, living an okay life, it was all about just being like seeing how far I could push it. You only live once, and to me, I, you gotta push as far as you, I don't want to die like with regret. I want to say I pushed as hard as I could have in my life, as far as my career and what I can do, what I can bring to this world. So, what was your first job out of the Navy? So, my dad was a barback. What is a barback? That's the guy who fills up the uh, ice for the bartender. And brings them the uh, and stocks the bar. So I was like, oh, I'll be a bartender. And I don't actually have the mind. Like, I thought I was a failure just because I couldn't become a bartender because I can't multitask. So my brain <laughs> worked on multitasking. The thing about a bartender, they have to be taking an order, pouring a drink, and then doing two or three things at once. And my mind's very focused. It's like, that's what works as an entrepreneur, though. You have to, I don't get distracted. Like, when I think about something or if I'm working on a problem, I'm so focused on that one little problem. Didn't work well for barbacking or bartending, so I, I didn't even have the skill set at 23 to be a bartender. So I was like, "Did you try and get fired or quit?" No, I just quit. I was like, "They're never going to make me a bartender." So I was like, "Then I worked." My dad worked. He had a little tiny. He was a freight agent. My dad started the first freight franchise for Pilot Air Freight, which is still around. So when I was a kid, he ran that. But my dad was never passionate about business. He was never like I am competitive. He was just like I just want to pay the bills, and so he never really did well with it. He did okay. He made enough to make a living. It was when I first started with him, it was just him working there. And he showed me how to make money just by picking up the phone and calling trucks on behalf of and connecting them to freight. So uh, my dad was an air freight forwarder though. He did, I didn't even know anything about trucking at the time. So I had to learn that, but that's how Global Trans makes most of their money and trucking. But he taught me, he's like, I'm like, dad, well, how do you make money? And I had this, I, I was lucky to have a father. It's like, all you got to do, Andrew, is watch this. He, so you got a, a shipper called him up and he's like, watch, I'm going to make money right now. And he showed me, he's like, and literally all he did was look at a book of rates called the ACI guide, which is what freight force still use, I think. And he's like, I'm going to move this freight for the shipper. 
I'm going to see if I can put it on a truck. There's a lot of, I'd say 30, 40% of everything goes on Ford Air and he's an express global systems back in the day. And then he showed me he could put 30% on top of the remark. I was like, so my cost is 300 bucks. I'm going to charge the shipper 500 bucks. You know, like I was like, whoa, that's how you do it. And he's like, yeah, that's where the idea for global trans came. Was it love at first sight? <laughs> yeah. I was like, whoa, it's that, <laughs> that easy. Like you're just literally just doing like, you're taking a pickup, a line haul, and a delivery and putting it together and then marketing up 35, 40%, 30, 50, you know, 40%. And you start saying, I think I just made like $800 an hour. Granted, I only did one load, but if I could do three more. <laughs> I only had like five customers at the time. So I was like, Dad, we need to get more customers. But I was like, why don't we? I went out and tried to sell one day without any technology. And I went back. I was so frustrated. I was like, we need a system. And at the time, I remember dad had five customers and one of the customers was using FreightQuote.com. And when I saw FreightQuote.com, I was like, whoa, that's what we needed to do. So thanks to uh, FreightQuote, I mean, I didn't come up with the idea for how to... We were the second company to do it though. Take LTL, it was LTL rates and expose them to shippers through a system, through technology. And it was... By the way, when I, had, when I first saw that, it took me two or three years. I was about three years to even develop this system because I had a... Number one, my dad didn't understand it. So I had to quit my dad's business. And then I got disowned from the family for a couple of years because they thought I was going to compete with my dad. My dad had five customers, by the way. So anyways, I leave my dad. I start Global Trans on an unemployment check, no money. And this is, I, I tell this story a lot because when people say you have to have money to make money, it's, I call them out on it because I didn't have, I had like a thousand bucks to my name when I started Global Trans. But how I did that, and that's why you have to be savvy. A lot of these entrepreneurs today don't have to be savvy because they just raise money. You raise two or three hundred million dollars, and that's why their products honestly kind of suck over time because it's like they don't have to like. There's kind of a good thing in having to grind it out at first, You're trying to and learn how to make money. So I, I started Global Trans with zero dollars in my name, and I remember one call that my dad got from the Yellow Pages was from someone selling something on eBay. They were selling a thousand dollar piece of furniture on eBay, and they were wondering how to ship it because they said UPS and FedEx doesn't do this, and most shippers know how to ship freight. So eBay was just popping up, and I was and I remember. Telling the shipper, telling this person, not a shipper, telling this customer to go to the terminal, drop it off, shrink wrap it to a pallet, and then tell your customer to pick up at the, at the terminal because you could save a fortune. You, you don't have to save on liftgate and pick. And they were like, "Wow, that's thirty. That's like fifty percent better than anything any other quote I've gotten." I was like, "Oh, I can make a lot more money." So I started jacking. I started putting those rates out at like 40 percent. And I went on eBay. So how I started Global Trans, I told this story a few times, but how I started it was with zero dollars. Is I went on eBay. And I emailed everybody I saw shipping something that looks like freight. Anything heavy, <laughs> anything big enough that won't go small parcel. Right. And I said, hey, when you're done selling that snowblower, give me a call. And they'd call me up and I'd say, and I'd had one rate from one trucking company, Central Transport, who's actually in Michigan. Yeah, yeah, I know those guys. I called 10 different trucking companies when I started Global Trans, and only one was willing to give me rates because they just opened up the Phoenix market and they thought that, we need freight out of Phoenix. They thought I was going to be shipping Phoenix, but I was like, hey, I need a blanket rate for the whole country. So I got credit. So how I started Global Trans, I got credit with Central Transport. I had a good enough discount to go sell the shippers. And I told shippers, instead of having Central Transport go pick up the freight at your house and cost you extra two bucks on each side, you bring it to the terminal and have your shipper bring it, pick it up at the terminal. And I did that with Ford Air as well. So after my first month in business, I emailed thousands of people for my first two weeks the most work I've ever done in my career is my first two weeks starting Global Trans. And because I just, I had to do everything. I'd email all the customers. And then when they started calling me for the rate, I'd give them the rate. I'd take 
And then I give them a rate based on thinking that they would drop it off the terminal, which would be like, I knew I would just crush anybody that they would call because everybody else would try to get a residential pickup. But I knew that anybody selling anything on eBay would be willing to bring it to a terminal, which would save three or 400 bucks per the shipment. So I won everything. Everybody I emailed, I won. And they paid me through PayPal. So thank God all this was there. Like I got paid through PayPal. So my first month, I started Global Trends with $0 in my name. I got like 500 bucks. But after a month, I had $100,000 in my bank account because I did $100,000 in business. My first Whoa. <laughs> just, so that was just shipments, mostly eBay stuff? Because remember, they would prepay me. That's the cool thing about, I've said this before to people. I said, when, I, when I'm, I'm from automotive, and one of the big problems in automotive is always cash flow. Because you do something, you're spending on engineers, manufacturing, big buildings, expensive stuff. And then you bill somebody, and they're supposed to pay you in 30 days, and they pay you in 45 or 60 or not at all. And then when I got into this business, I was like, wait a sec. I don't have to pay my bills for like, what, 20 some days, 30 days, maybe at the latest. I think it was 38 was the absolute latest before they cut you off. But my guys are paying me in, in a week or two weeks. I was like, you can grow with your customer's money. I mean, that's rare. Not every business is like that. But I always knew that what I really, truly needed to build was what Freightquote had, which is a system that companies can go to and see all the trucking companies and tie into the rates. At that time, I was like, how do you even tie into rates? And I remember when I first started Global Trans, I, I literally took the disc from some transport. It was a, they used to have rate discs. Developers in India tried to like figure out how to take these rates. So I was like, I didn't know how Freightquote did it. And then I found out about this company called SMC3, and that's where we were the second company Freco was the first to take LTL rates and put them online. And then we're the second. And I remember we had a big pushback. I mean, it took me two years from that when I started Global Trans to where I released my first version of. So when you started that company, did you start it with you and your brother? Do you have other partners or was it just you? No, my brother came in about three years after I started Global Trans. See, he's been my partner ever since. And he's really instrumental in helping me build these. Me and him have perfect skill sets that complement each other. He's the day-to-day he builds the greatest culture. He's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. And I come up with the idea and the business plan and all that. Cool. So you started and you made $100,000 the first month. No way. That's incredible. About that is the, so if you know anything about LTL trucking, you're, the carriers don't really call you. They want to get paid in like 40 days, right? But shut you off for at least 60. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, see, it was. I did a lot of less than truckload. I always thought it was 38 was always the day that we said we'd better pay them by 38 or they're going to shut us off. Because we were scared to death of losing that credit with them. <laughs> and I remember, so I got to play that game a little bit. So I paid Central Transport. So it took 60 days for Central Transport to call me and say, we're about to cut you off. And I was like, I didn't have an accountant at the time. So I was like scrambling to find a bookkeeper. I was like, okay, I'm going to pay So I wrote him a check for 50 grand. I, didn't have, I remember writing him a check for like 50 grand just to get him caught up. But remember, I already had like two or 300000 in my bank account at the time because it was two months later after doing this. And that's what started, like I had my startup capital, really. Were you married at the time? No, I was single. I was a 20, I was very young. I bet your buddies all thought, you know what? He finally got into drugs. We knew it was going to happen. <laughs> he had no prospects and here he is. Now he's doing drugs. No, uh, my friends actually, that was like how I started my company is I hired all, a bunch of my friends to do what I was doing. I had one guy just emailing eBay shippers. I had one guy calling in the pickups. I had another guy explaining to uh, the shippers on how to bring it to the terminal, how to shrink wrap it, you know, crate it, how to crate it. Like I said, I only really did two weeks of true work in my career. But remember, I, I studied, before I started Global Trends, 
I studied how to build businesses for a couple of years. Like I read every book. Like I said I read every book on how to build businesses and also think like a billionaire. Like I've read every billion, like Sam Walton's book, every book written by a billionaire at the time I read because I wanted to learn how they did it. And obviously how you do it is delegation. You have to hire the best people. So after two weeks, three weeks of working, you know, I had all this money now in my bank account. So I just hired it instead of spending. I remember thinking to myself, man, I could go to Vegas and have fun finally. Like you have some money to throw around, but I didn't I do, made it. Yeah. do that. I took all my money for the first couple of years and I reinvested in the company. I was very disciplined about that. Yeah. It's interesting. I just finished a book about John D. Rockefeller and it was an audio book. And it was incredible to see, even when he was very poor, how he lived kind of almost the same way after he made a ton of money. He was always very, gave to charity and very measured. I mean, and what was interesting is what you kind of said is I backed you were an introvert. You said, I'm going to back out. I don't want to be day to day guy. He was the same way. He was made, I think he made the most money after he kind of stepped down from his own company. Standard Oil. And it was like, it was very interesting to see because he came from a different place. Same with Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, I think, is fascinating the way he's built his life. He lives his life the way he's always lived his life. At no point did he say, well, now I'm going to have to start going to the office at 6 a.m. and work until midnight. Nope. He decided how he's going to live. You've done the same. Yeah. And that's uh, when I started my company, I knew how to hire, like, I, I hired the best. Well, it took me a couple years even to get to that point where I could hire some industry people and all that. But what's good about what I did with that Global Trans is also is the fact that Global Trans has a lot of eight freight agents. The only reason that we had that Global Trans is built with freight agents and not sales reps is that I had no money to hire sales reps. Right. <laughs> right. So how long were you at Global Trans from beginning to end? 15 years. So I started in 2003 and I, I'm sorry, 14, yeah, 14. So I left in 2016, 17. I brought to about a half a billion in revenue and that's where I left. And the reason why I left is I saw that I really want to do what I'm doing now at Emerge. And that's so I left in 2016, 17 to do that. So in that 15 years, you got married, had kids? Yeah, right. Yeah. My kids are very young, but yes. So you more or less, you grew up during that time in a sense. I mean, you grew up during the Navy, but I mean, you started having a sense of yourself. I mean, it's got to be what a wild ride to go from absolutely no money to a ton of money in 15 years. It must have been quite a learning curve. And now that I know what I do way better than I did back then, and I know every angle, I'm just very curious. Like, I, I want to know how it all works. And when I first started to merge, I had no clue how large shippers actually thought about trucking. And now I do, which is awesome. Like, but it's, yeah, experience definitely helps. Like, you, being an expert in what you do is very important. Right. Well, you know, but to some extent, there is some value in where you started, which is, I don't know, but I'm a little naive about things, but I'm going to run like hell until I figure it out. Yeah. And I was curious. I never wanted to say I knew everything. And I still don't to this day. I don't want to know. That's when you fail as an entrepreneur. I think it's when you're a know-it-all and you think that you got it all. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> the more I know, the it's, there's an old saying, the more I know, the less I know. And it's because the more you know, you start to realize how much more there is to know. So let me ask you, when you decided to exit Global Trans, who did you sell that to? So we got our first investment when we hit $100 million in sales, which now, if you just have an idea, you could get a $10 million investment. That's what we got. So we brought in three or four different private equity companies to help us take it to the next level, speed things up. I could have done it without the private equity companies and venture capitalists, but it just definitely helps to speed things up. And I have carriers screaming at me because we owe them money. It's very hard. I don't know if I could ever go through that again. Making money, it's just... Before you have venture capital, you'd have to make money 
then you'd have to go hire your people. Then you'd have to like wait, get more ship, you know, get more customers. Then yeah, it was a game. That's it. It took so long to build businesses. 10, 15 years ago. Right. Well, what's interesting is you mentioned before you got capital. So there was, I remember reading about like companies like Facebook would have gone public way earlier. And the reason they would have gone public is because the guys who were sitting atop of this thing would say, I just want some, I want to buy a house. I want to buy a nice car. And so now there's so much private equity and seed capital and VCs that are in early that say, hey, we'll give you some money. You're going to be just fine before this goes public. But they said a lot of the IPOs were rushed in the past because people wanted wanted to cash out a little bit, take some chips off the table. You know, what's really scary is that, and back to your question, so I had four private equity companies, and that's why I left. Once you have four private equity venture capitalists, it's very hard to grow your business, honestly, because there's always someone in the room that's going to have a conflicting interest. Like they might just want to flip the company, you know, like they just want to turn around and sell it. So obviously investing your money, burning cash or investing deep into the company is not going to be in there, what they want to do. So that's what happened at Global Trends. I had an investor that wanted to slow things down. They're happy getting a two, three X return in a couple of years and let's make some money. And that's not what I want to do. I wanted to take, I wanted to do what I'm doing at Emerge at Global Trends, but I had an investor there that was against that. So I had a week. I always think it's kind of interesting when you bring in venture capital or private equity or investors of any sort, at some point, you might not be the boss anymore. <laughs> that, that, that would be challenging too, especially when it's your baby and you said, I'm the one who had the vision. I'm the one who built this. I've got the blood, sweat, and tears. And now somebody reads a check. And then one day they're like, you know what I'd like you to do tomorrow? <laughs> it wasn't that they're bad. Like, I feel like investors today, they really understand like we're betting on the founder and the founder is the best person to take this thing to the next level, no matter what, even if they have big problems, because if you hire someone to run it, it's the guy you hire isn't going to lose sleep if the business goes. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I got to that point. Some founders have trouble going to the next level. So I get that. But in my situation with Global Trends, it was all about, it wasn't that the investors were terrible people. It was that they, there was just one with a conflicting we want this company to start making a lot of money so we could turn around, flip, and sell it. And at any point, like Global Trans at the time was half a billion dollar revenue. I wanted to take it to a $2 billion company like organically instead of do it through acquisition. Right. We look at Amazon right now and Jeff Bezos and go, oh my God, you know, look at what, how brilliant he was. It had to be at least a decade of people saying, when is that company going to make a profit? When are we going to see actual success? And what Jeff Bezos, to his credit, said, I don't care that the whole world is screaming, make money, I am going to reinvest. And it worked out okay for me, I guess. Yeah, and that's what I want to do with my new company, Merge. Like, I want to just, like, I don't worry about, can we monetize the shipper right now? I just want the shipper on the platform because I was like, and then I keep building and building and building. And then one day it will all come together. And at this point right now, I'm not, that's not my, what's nice having, Investors and money, you can do that nowadays. They just needed a lot of money to do that. So when you left Global Trans, how long until you started 10.4 and then Emerge? I started 10.4 at Global Trans. I wanted, always wanted to build the marketplace for trucking. I always thought it's crazy. You know, Think about this. If you go buy a plane ticket, if you buy anything, there's a place you could go on the web for most things and buy it. You can buy trucking capacity on the internet today. Or you can't. You could go to one digital broker and they could buy, you could buy from them, but you can't buy everybody. There's no place for trucking. There just doesn't exist. And that was my goal always. I didn't know how I was going to do it at the time. I had no clue. Actually, if you asked me two or three, even three years ago, what Emerge is going to be doing, 
I'd be like, I would have told you probably a different story because I didn't understand it. I had to go out there and meet with tons of shippers and understand it from their angle. Like, why do you choose the carriers you choose? How does it work? Why do you only give so much to one carrier? And how do you choose the carriers to give the business? And that was like questions I didn't, had no clue about when I said, I'm going to start the truckload marketplace. But now I've, I've got most of those, an- those questions answered. So how long was it before you started to merge? So 10-4 to do what I'm doing now. But 10-4 at the time, I remember I went to a big shipper and they're like, they saw a marketplace and they saw carriers, trucks moving on a map. And 10-4 was the first, there was us and four kites at the time, was the first, one of the first, hey, tie in all your trucks. You have 50 different trucking companies and, and you have all these different, they all have ELDs, most of them. Why aren't you pulling this all into one place to see all your trucks? That's what 10-4 pivoted into. But when we first showed customers, we showed them a marketplace and we showed them what I wanted to merge to be. And we just got sidetracked because a lot of shippers would be like, we don't really care about your marketplace. We want to see these trucks. Right. So, so is 10-4 still a going concern? So Trimble bought them. And Trimble is the uh, publicly traded company. They own the biggest ERP for trucking in the United States. Oh, okay. So, so it's still going along. That, cool. And so when did you start Emerge? Like how long ago? I took the marketplace out of 10-4 and I started Emerge. Because no one wanted, so when, when Trimble bought 10-4, they wanted just the visibility platform, which was needed. I mean, that's now there's P44 and they're both going at it for this visibility, you know, showing uh, my passion was always in the connection. I wasn't ever passionate about the visibility portion, even though it's a big business. Very important. Very Yeah. It, it, what would we talk about if we didn't say visibility over the last five years? <laughs> it's funny. It, it became one of those words that almost meant nothing because everybody said, well, we'll give you visibility. And I was like, yeah, some of you are doing it with phone calls and some of you are doing it with tech, right? But it just started being something that was said so often that you kind of go, does that even mean anything? It's almost the way young people use the word literally, where you know, <laughs> that's not the proper use of the word, but you hear it constantly from them. Yeah. So visibility back even five years ago was brand new. Shippers really wanted it. They didn't really care for my marketplace before. So I decided to take the marketplace concept out of it and just go with the visibility, and that's what we sold. Then I got to put the reset button at Emerge, and now Emerge is really what 10.4 was supposed to be, which is a visibility and connection marketplace to carriers, which I was always passionate about. The visibility, I just gave away for free, because to me, that's not... I want a place where you go in and buy a... A truck's coming to Phoenix. There's thousands of them today that are hitting Phoenix. How come most shippers don't have access? And those trucks don't have access. The better way to say it, how come those trucking companies, I always say this to shippers when they're thinking about a merge. If you pull over any truck on the side of the road and say, hey, do you have access to my freight? There's a 99% chance that trucking company would say, no. But no, I do have access, but I have to go through so-and-so to get access to it. Right, right. I don't have direct access to you. I can't go bid on your freight. How do I do that? Right. So I'm just curious. Obviously, when you left the Navy, you needed money. So you went right to work, right? There was no extended naval gazing. And then you had this big success with Global Trans. I'm sure it was an enormous amount of work over those 15 years. Then you between 10-4 and Emerge. Do you ever take a year off? Do you ever goof off for six months? No. It's hard for me to do that. First of all, I look at my work as a game. Like it's even though I had success and Global Trans sold for 400 million when I cashed out and I owned a big portion of it. Then it sold a year later for 800 million. So I didn't get, I don't know. <laughs> so, so you're looking at that big pile of cash you had and said, it should be twice as big. <laughs> literally just taking, I didn't have to work a day the rest of my life and I could live the greatest life ever. 
And I choose not to. I choose to play the game still, which is... Well, that is your greatest life ever. I mean, that's... I say this all the time when I people say, I can't wait to retire. I always think like, well, if you're doing something you really want to do, what's the rush? I mean, Oprah, you can get you can watch it at night after work if you really want to. You, I mean, I don't understand what's the rush. Now, in the olden days, if you were working in a coal mine or putting parts onto a, an auto assembly line, yeah, I get it. You're in pain and you know, you're getting old. I get retiring. But this day and age, for what? Do something you want to do. If you have a mindset, they say, I, I read this in some books that talk about this. If you, When you say I'm retired as a person, like, I'm retiring, I'm retired. I think the lifespan is like three or four years. <laughs> right. Well, and I don't even want to bring politics into it. This is where I say it. But look at our last few presidents. Uh, President Trump obviously had more than enough money to retire. President Biden obviously had enough money. These guys were doing something they wanted to do. And again, this is a political as I'll get because people are crazy, but those guys are very old. I mean, late 70. I I think think Biden's like 78 years old. And this was his dream. He wanted to be the president 30 years ago, but he's the president now. So good for him. (laughs) Imagine, by the way, I don't have that type of energy where I could do what Trump provided. I mean, waking up in the morning and then having just meetings all day long. And right. <laughs> right. That's to me, they should, I like the idea of working. I always say you should kind of move to an emeritus role where when you're 78 years old, I imagine you go, I'm investing and I'm, I'm mentoring and I'm seeing my grandkids going out for a long lunch <laughs> in the gym. Not, none of this uh, get up at six o'clock and work all day, but no, and I'm very appreciative. I mean, one, I'm not, wouldn't wish this to happen, but the best part about this whole coronavirus is the fact that business travel is never going to come back to what it used to be, which is kind of nice as an entrepreneur. I don't have to go travel. I want to close one year ago. If I wanted to close an account, a big account, I'd have to go meet them in person, shake their hand, literally fly out for one hour meeting, maybe 50 minutes. It's just like a formality. And spend a whole night in a hotel, like if it was in Michigan, like somewhere crazy. It'd take me a whole day of travel just to go have a that you, could do on- you, you know what? I decided a few years back that I didn't want to travel as much, and I really don't. Because just that, what I started to feel like is it takes me half a day to get to Texas, and then I'm in Texas, and I have three or four meetings, three or four hours, and then I'm back, and you're looking, go, it took like two days of travel, and then I'm worn out, and I'm sleeping in hotels, forget it. I don't work out, I eat wrong, <laughs> forget it. Now it's like why you could have always you could always done this. I mean, technology was there before the pandemic. It was just in our custom. Right. If I valued that meeting, I would get on a plane, and I feel like forget that. So we talked about global trans, big success, and we talked about ten four. That sounds like a pretty big, decent success, even though it was the way it sounded is like almost like a consolation prize. You had to split your baby from the visibility tool, and then emerge, you're having a lot of success. And you had said you were at a fourth company that did not succeed. I'd like to understand what was that company and tell us a little about that was your only failure, you said. Yes. So when Uber first came out, the car service, not the trucking version, I thought that's what I built. I built mobile apps for at 10.4, we were building tracking trucks and all that stuff. And I was like, wow, if I just added a couple more features to my product here, gave it to a driver, we have an Uber app. I mean, so I did that. I called it F-A-R-E, FAIR. And I put $3 million of my own money into it. I was like, going to compete with Uber. I was like, and Lyft. And if you're in the Austin market back in 2017, 16, when they pulled out of that market, we went and filled it up with our app. Like That was our kind of uh, starting point. My goal was to build an agent model through drivers like they did in, in Global Trans, like taking 
a driver and they would literally go give cards out to people, hey, use my service, and then they would get money. Uh, anytime that customer used the app for other drivers, they would get paid. And I thought that would work. And I thought the economics would make sense. Like it was 30, I was like, man, LTL, I only get 20% of the margin, 15% in truckload. And they're, you know, Uber's taking 35% and they're getting, giving the driver 65 as their margin. But I found out once I got in that business that insurance eats up about 20% of that when you're small. <laughs> no, That's out the door. So you're paying insurance. And then even to this day, Uber and Lyft have to burn as they grow. They have to continually, burn. they're not making money on that business because they got to get more and more density. Learn that I live kind of out in the country and Uber and Lyft were not good for me. So like when I would leave, and when I say out in the country, it's not that far out, but like 25 minutes out of Ann Arbor. And it was hard to find a driver to come pick me up and drive me home. It used to drive me crazy. And, and they would say, the problem is when I drive out to where you live, I don't have a fare going back. So I pay them a lot more. <laughs> Built fare, I was like, this is going to make sense. And I actually, when we got to $20 million of revenue, we were like number one in Austin, Texas for a while because Uber and Lyft pulled out of Texas because of the loss. We went in there real quick. And we're like, hey, we, could, we have the app. So we, it was us in Ride Austin. And uh, we got up to 20 million. But as we got more revenue, we'd have to burn more money. And then I went out and tried to get, raise money from investors. They're like, listen, there's already two massive fares. <laughs> there's no room for another one, which makes sense. So I failed because, and I have to look back and I reflect, I failed because I didn't understand that. I thought 35% was enough. You would grow and you could actually pay for it. That was a big margin from where you came from. Exactly. I was like, wow, this could be even better than trucking. And then I figured out and I found out, no, as you grow, you're burning, it costs you about 5 to 10% over your cost to run the fare. It was like, as you grew out, if it was 100 million, we're 22 million, 20 million in sales. I was just burning... Three million to five million dollars a year, just based just as we're growing. So I was like, when we get to hundred million, that's thirty million. No way. <laughs> and uh, well, I wanted to fund it, so I had it closed. So you had obviously had a lot of success before you started this. So I mean, it sounded like when you were a kid, you weren't a good student. You didn't necessarily play sports, as you said. Your last kid picked. You saw some through probably through your music and through the navy. But all these years later, when you've had that failure, uh, how did you react? I mean, how did that hit you? Was it? No big deal because I know I'm successful, or was it? Oh my God, that was devastating. It was devastating. I mean, it wasn't devastating. I can't say that. It was, uh, I remember I already had big success at Global. You know, all lost for me. It was, just, it was your first venture, it would have felt a lot different. Yes. Yeah. I took a risk that I was willing to take. So I, I wasn't really that upset about it. It was just more like why well, waste my time kind of thing and energy versus losing money at the time. But I mean, it, it was uh, a learning experience for sure. I mean, in terms of learning, do you feel like you learn more from that failure or from all the successes you've had? Well, that was that came very late. I, I, I learned that even though it's logistics, if you're an entrepreneur, stick with what, something you know. You know, at least or unless, although I can say, I mean, for at least for me, I know trucking logistics. I've I've spent ten Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hour rule. Like I'm probably like fifty thousand hours now of, of learning and continue learning about logistics and trucking and how it all moves and the hall of players. And that's where my, I could best serve my time and money and things that I know. And in this industry, there's not that many great people who build technology. That's one of the reasons why I'm successful is I'm okay at building technology. If I was in any other industry, I would be, if I was competing against Silicon Valley, it would be a different story, but I'm not. We kind of are now, aren't you? (laughs) And what logistics, not really. There's no way in Silicon Valley that I believe is doing anything that is impactful to a big degree yet. 
it hasn't happened. I mean, I always feel like those guys are like 10 and 0, though. Once they get here, they are, <laughs> whatever industry they get to, they do a good job. You have Flexport, you have a couple others, maybe, but no one's usually impactful yet. I mean, from Silicon, no one from Silicon, there's not that, I don't know any yet. Maybe you do. I don't know anybody. So let me ask a question before we get back into Emerge. You've had some very successful companies with Global Trans and then with 10.4 and now with Emerge. What would you say were the keys to those success? So you had to give some reflection after Global Trans and after 10.4 and as you get into Emerge. What was some of the things that you say, God, if I was to do four things in that business, it would be these four things or five things? I would say the biggest thing that I've learned over the years is that team matters more than then the idea initially, it's actually the most important thing. That's why investors have learned to invest in teams, not just persons. So team is the most important thing. Building your team and the energy behind your idea is the most important thing. And then also talking about your vision every single day and reminding us that I take this from Steve Jobs. I've learned a lot like just by reading all these, you know, the greatest entrepreneurs of all time. But reiterating your vision every single day to your team is very important. And those guys had to buy. I'm assuming that you, when you say energy behind the idea, you mean your team is believing in that vision, and they're they believe it as much as you do, or ninety percent at least. I explain them over and over until they finally get it. And it's like, oh, and then and I want all the guys around me to treat the company. I've learned that you want the whole team around you to treat it like you would treat it. So obviously, giving them equity, which I think you have to do. I wouldn't know how to start a company without giving equity to my best guys, because I want them to all be owners in the business and women. I want them all to be owners and push like I would push. And then obviously their skill set needs to be different than everybody else's. I make sure of that too, my team. Like this guy's good at that. I need someone good at sales or especially in technology too. You have to find the skill sets that are needed and complementary to each other. So there's this vision and a team. What else What else is some of those keys to success to all these ventures you've had? Well, it's idea, then the team is most... Exp- and they're not building a business plan either. Like when I started Emerge, I wanted to build a marketplace for trucking. But if you look at my business, I didn't really do a business plan because I didn't really know what I needed to do. You were so ready to pivot. That's what I've always felt like is I've had businesses in the past where I had this very detailed business plan. And then you kind of look and go, that's not what happened. <laughs> As an entrepreneur, I feel like finally I feel like emerges more on that line that is going to be the line that that takes it to the next level because we're going to do we might be the fast growing logistics company of all time because we might next year we might do a billion or have almost close to I would say we could be approaching a billion dollars pretty soon in revenue and we've done that in four or five years and nice uh, yeah so it's nice because I feel like we're on that. I finally figured out who Emerge is going to be to create this truckload market. So let me ask you, when you started Emerge, did you start that with just your money or did you go get investors also? No, I had investors. I had, so the good thing about having some success is that investors are lining up. They take your phone calls. <laughs> I gave enough to investors to, uh, but not because I needed the money. It's, it's always good to have investors like my investors called, uh, we have a VC called Graycroft. You know, VCs are actually getting really good at bringing in companies too to the bit. Like they brought us Albertsons, for instance, they had a relationship. So investors can be your salespeople to start too, uh, not only give you money. And that's what I look for in these guys. So I have, I have investors now. You're also, when they invest, I imagine you're getting a whole bunch of really smart people who are on your board all of a sudden. Oh yeah. And obviously if you have an investor to start, it's much easier to find the next round of funding because they usually go out to all their friends, which VC community and, and private equity community. Hey, I got this, one of my best companies is this. And you, raising money is very easy at that point. 
Well, yeah, you've, you've had that record of success. I imagine there's a whole bunch of people would listen to this and go, raising money's not that easy, <laughs> but, but it's easy when you after you win a few games. No, so That's the hardest, for sure. So let's switch gears here and talk a little bit about Emerge again. So your vision for Emerge was, I want this marketplace, and you call it Emerge Market. So what's the real advantage for shippers? Why should they use Emerge Market? Actually, I sometimes think I've got the business model so good. I actually sometimes think, how come every shipper is not using this? Because it's free, number one. Right. That's that's a big selling point. It runs your whole bid, including the bids with your carriers and brokers. So if you have 20 carriers and brokers in your stable today, you could run your bid with those carriers and brokers and trade with them for free. Don't We don't charge you any money to do that. We're, we go after procurement. I've noticed that there's a missing piece of technology in the most shipper supply chain, and that's how they procure freight. Everybody has a TMS. No one has a great procurement system for all their modes of transportation. We're just starting in truckload. We're getting into drayage now. But my goal is that we are doing the freight procurement for all modes. And then we use the network effect. So when a big shipper comes in and puts all their loads and they bring 100 carriers to the bid and another shipper brings in their loads and another 100 carriers to the bid, network effect is what drives it. And now carriers can come and go, wow, I didn't know I could bid on this freight. And then think about this, how many trucks are out there, private and dedicated fleets that are moving empty today. Now, there's a couple of companies trying to do it, but it's never been done good, in my opinion. Right now, I think that the number one company that does that, which is connect shippers to dedicated and private fleets, which is, remember, almost half the trucks out there are private or dedicated fleets. 30 to 40% of the time, those trucks are empty. So whenever you see a logo on a truck, there's a 30 to 40% chance that truck's empty. Because it's, it's probably a local, it's probably a two, less than a 200 mile run. Very rarely does it have freight going back for that same company. So utilizing that equipment is not even being taken advantage of. So that's what we're trying to do at Emerge is, and a lot of shippers will say, hey, you sold us when we first started on, we could put our backhauls in here. And I tell them like, that's the future. I mean, we need to get tons of shippers using this product first. Then once they use it, that's when you can then sell them your excess capacity. And then they could take advantage of it and vice versa on the big shippers having sharing dedicated fleets. I think it's so important from a sustainability perspective. I always say I, I absolutely know that business is a force for good in the world. I think the challenge that people could level at the business community is you need to do better with environmental issues. So we, we all know we've been trying to fill those empty miles for a long time. We need to get rid of those empty miles. The only way we're going to do it is with technology. More people saw what I saw, but it's true. The thing about this, like, if every shipper was doing their bids on the same technology, it would probably cut 20 per, and we have a, we have a capacity issue right now. Like we don't have enough capacity. That's, it's the one of the tightest carrier markets in a long time. I would say if everybody was on the same portal to do their bids, it would literally not be a problem. We wouldn't have a capacity issue in the United States because every truck you see moving today out of a city was bought by a shipper. They probably have 20 relationships, 30 relationships, carriers and brokers. And there might have been another truck coming here that was a better option for that. Maybe that truck had a deadhead load. There's always a better truck for a load. It's just the data is siloed everywhere. It's like this shipper's doing procurement through spreadsheets and email, which most of them do, by the way. That's what the worst part of what frustrates me the most about this industry is the fact that we have a free platform, but I have to literally go to every shipper in the United States with a sales, with an enterprise sales team or some kind of way to get it to them. Because in this industry, if you build it, they do not freaking come ever. Right. I think in these terms also, Andrew, is that at some point we have consumers right now who will say, I make decisions based on on the supply chain. 
I want to buy from somebody who has an ethical supply chain. I want to buy from a, a company that has a supply chain that values the environment as much as I do, right? So we make those decisions. And we're seeing that where people buy all birds because of that. They buy Patagonia. They're going working with B Corps. At some point, I think we're going to be able to push, apply a little bit of pressure on trucking companies to say, hey, get part of this network or that network so you don't have empty miles. I think sometimes right now there's a, I don't want to be captive to anybody. I'm my own company. I don't want to be attached to somebody. I don't want to be under somebody's thumb. And I've heard different people say, I used to have one of my brokers say, and they mentioned a large brokerage company, one of the largest said, Carriers hate working with them because they feel like as soon as, as soon as you start working with them, they have so many loads that they keep you busy all day, every day, but not for the rates you want. So after a while, you're like, why did I start this trucking company? Right. So yeah, it's hard to say no after a while, but anyway, we've got to get rid of those empty miles. So I, I like what you're saying. So getting back to it for shippers, great deal. Now, why is a carrier, why should carriers sign up for Emerge? Because now you have finally have access to bid on truck. I mean, if you, like I said, if you show me a truck in my system and they were brought in by, let's say, one of our big shippers, there's a 99% chance they don't have access to any of the other shippers in our system because they don't have the sales force for it. Unless you're Swift, Knight, J.B. Hunt, Schneider, that's your biggest competitor, right? The biggest trucking companies because they want, they want to own everything just like the biggest brokers want to own everything. So most shippers want, you know, carriers love our system because they finally have, they make the decision on whether... Like right now, they have to go to a big broker maybe to go get that freight, right? And maybe that bro- big broker says, you know what? I need you on this ship. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what if you actually had access to that shipper directly where you didn't have to rely on that? And that's where, by the way, to carriers and everybody and shippers, this whole concept. And that's the hardest. My, my job is like, well, I'm, I'm doing this because I have to explain and reiterate over and over. It takes actually even my own salespeople because we have such a new, unique model and we're the only ones doing it this way to understand what our sell is and how what's the benefits and why does it all work. So it's not their share in a sense, but... Yeah, it's funny. Them- I've had lots of small companies. I, I'm my, my small company now and I always say sometimes it's it feels dangerous dancing with giants. So people are like, oh no, no, that company's huge and if I start working with them, they're going to uh, step on me. And that's one of the reasons as soon as you start working with a large broker or if you're a carrier, start working with a larger carrier, you start to feel captive. And you also start to like it because you go, hey, I got steady cash flow. So so there's an advantage to joining Emerge because you don't have that kind of relationship with carriers. How bad this is. Every single broker and every single large carrier in the United States wants to silo their own capacity information so they can take advantage of themselves. But is that really doing the industry? Is that doing anybody good? No, it's if you ask the biggest broker in the United States, hey, could you show me where all these trucks, like, or how about this? Even do it, what, take this. If you can't fill those trucks up, could you at least let the rest of the market know? What do you think they would say? <laughs> no, no. You know what? It's interesting. What you're describing kind of is like what Apple, what Apple did at one point is say, we're going to have this closed system, right? You're not going to, no, we make everything. We own everything inside the Apple product where the IBM model went a little different. Right. That's right. I know we're going to win because that is over time. It's not, not a sustainable business model. Can you imagine 20 years from now, like the biggest broker, the biggest carrier, like hiding their information and actually that makes sense? It, it won't make sense that it, as technology and everybody gets digitalized and everything gets digitalized, sharing the information is more important. It's better. It's better for everybody. And even if you want to take advantage of that capacity yourself, you're the biggest broker, I could fill this truck up. You don't fill them up all the time. You might fill them up like 10, 20. It's not even that much, to be honest with you. I've seen it. 
15% of the time you can fill that truck up and you're on freight. Let's say, why don't you at least make that information available six hours back, you know, before it, right. give it, but it just doesn't exist. And that's what it's interesting because I think in some regards, if let's just say I had a few trucks and I'm working closely with a broker and they say, Hey, I can't fill you up, but I know someone who can, boy, I'm going to be happy that, that we're working that way because I look and go, Hey, this dude, even when he doesn't make money, he helps me out. That's somebody I want to work with. That's a partner as opposed to a, just a transactional business. So it's good for shippers, good for carriers. Now, why should freight brokers and 3PLs work with you at Emerge? Uh, so freight brokers actually get more, most of the freight in our system today. And freight brokers, actually, if you want to bring Emerge to your, we have a new program that's coming out that you could actually bring our platform to your shipper, but it's still, it's in its infancy. If a freight broker wants to gain more freight from a shipper, you definitely should bring Emerge. Let me just say that. So we're actually going to make it open to freight brokers. We're not stupid and thinking we're going to get every shipper ourselves. We know that we have to partner with companies like, like big freight brokers and 3PLs to do it. But a lot of them are very, I'll be honest, like it's very hard for me to talk to freight brokers because they're so standoffish about their carrier information. They're so standoffish about their shipper. But you don't really own that shipper. You're bidding on some Excel spreadsheet. So is everybody else. And if <laughs> you want to contact Emerge and say, hey, how do I bring this to my shippers? We're open to that. And using us as a technology. But a lot of brokers, I'll be honest with you, are so short-sighted. And they think that their biggest thing they have right now is the fact that they know they own this freight and they own that carers on that freight. Well, collaborating, sharing information all feels great as long as I'm getting something. As soon as I'm giving something, it starts to feel like, oh, whoa, wait a sec. That's everything proprietary, that you're going to ruin my business if I share. But please give me some of your information. My name broker. So what we do is we give a shipper, most shippers, again, how do you buy the freight? They buy it off of it. So they go out and procure their rates once a year for, once or twice a year for contract and then every day for spot. If you brought them a system for this, you would get way more freight from them to your brokerage. So we've been exploring that model, but no, honestly, no brokers really, it's kind of funny. Like I've told even some of my broker friends about this and they call me back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Joins emerge and then you're going to be like, you don't want this. It's just crazy to me. It's like, at least it's logistics. I mean, what am I going to do? Right, right, right. Well, you're doing all right. That's why it's not hard to be. And a lot of guys, my guys that work for me, like some come to my jet mechanics from T44, used to work for me at Global Trans. This is the easy, the best industry to be in. Like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, because there's so many ideas that you can go with and run with, and you have to shake your head at a lot of the decisions that even the biggest companies make. Um, (laughs) Chet was supposed to be on this podcast. He had to postpone, and I don't. It's been a while, so I have to reach out again. (laughs) Yeah, and he gets. He's done all right too, I think. (laughs) So that's why truckload brokers, and we again give most of our freight to truckload brokers. Today, most of them, we don't give it to our shippers, tender, remember, it's free. It's free to add all your brokers. How do you guys make money then? If it's free to shippers, it's free to brokers? So we make money only when a carrier comes in and bids on the freight and wins the freight. So if a carrier comes in, and we've tried to, by the way, we tried to do this with brokers before, and that failed miserably because brokers would buy the freight and then just back out on it at the last second because they didn't have a truck. And they would do it to us like they were like, oh, it's just a merge. It's not a ship. <laughs> right. I had to get, we're going to help brokers out, but they stay, you can't even do that. So it's only carriers. Carriers could come in and when they bid on freight, they, if they get tendered the freight, we take a, a half the fee of what a typical broker makes. So about 9%. We're reducing the cost for the shipper and for the carrier. And obviously we pay the carrier and then the shipper pays us. That's how we make money. Nice. 
Nice. So if somebody wants to reach out to you guys over at Emerge, how do we reach out to you? I'm, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some links from Brielle to your website and, and to your LinkedIn profile and probably to your LinkedIn company page. But channels, if you have trouble with the normal channels, uh, just uh, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm open to talking to anybody if you have ideas or interest in Emerge. So. Yeah, that's excellent. So give us some final thoughts here and then we'll wrap this bad boy up. Uh, yeah, so thank you for having me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy man. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I hope that anybody listening to this, if you know of shippers, if you're a broker, if you're a carrier, and you want to bring shippers to a platform that will make it so you get business for life, you could actually get three to four times more freight than you're getting now, bring them the platform. Someone else, I mean, your shipper's going to come to a marketplace at some point. If they go to- might as well bring them. <laughs> Do you think they're going to be using Excel spreadsheets and email for the next 10 years trying to procure their... 80% of the trucks in the road are contracted trucks, and most of the time it's Excel spreadsheets and email. 10 years from now, how is that shipper buying freight? Bring them a portal, for God's sakes. And if you're a shipper, bring this to your company and stop doing it on silo. You know, Take advantage of the capacity that's out there. It's, a, it's the tightest carrier market ever. The sad part is I have to literally hire a massive enterprise sales team to go get this out there. I mean, there's just no way to go out no other way to do it. You can't just market your way to success in this industry. You have to have feet on the street. But yeah. Give me a call. If you want to partner with Emerge, let us know. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I do really appreciate you taking the time today, Andrew. I, I, this You're a very coveted interview guest. I guess a lot of my mine are lately, but I do appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Joe. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 